Well, welcome back to our series on current cultural issues. Our series is quickly winding down as this is the second to last video in the series. Um, but today, I'm going to be talking about Islam. All right, there are more than a billion Muslims in the world today. A Muslim is somebody who practices the religion of Islam. And it's the second largest religion uh, right behind Christianity. And it is rapidly growing and increasing in number. Well, I'm going to show you a picture, and I want you to think of your reaction uh, to it as I put it on the screen. Here we can see that there is a picture of a Muslim praying. Well, the way that you react to seeing this picture is probably influenced by how well you know the religion, or maybe it's from what you hear in the media. Well, in today's lesson, I'm going to try to explain uh, the foundations and, and give an overview of the religion of Islam. I think it's important to know if, you, if you're not familiar with this, if you haven't heard or, or studied the religion before, I think it can be very beneficial because again, uh, Muslims it's, and Islam is the second greatest religion in the world, the most popular. So your chances of coming in contact with somebody of um, the Islamic faith uh, is pretty good behind Christianity. And as we seek to share the gospel with other people, uh, having an understanding of their religion and what they believe and how they get to that point uh, can be very beneficial to us. So I'm sure you'll learn some things as we uh, go through this lesson. Uh, I'm not a expert on this topic uh, by any means. I'm not an expert on the religion, but I'm going to try to explain it to you the best I can and hopefully you have an understanding about the similarities and differences between Islam and Christianity by the end of this lesson. So let's go ahead and we'll start with an overview and the origins of Islam. Islam started with a man named Muhammad in AD 610. He was in a dark cave on the mountain of Jabal al-Nur a few miles northeast of Mecca for a time of meditation. According to Islamic tradition, Muhammad was suddenly awakened from sleep by the sensation of a terrifying presence. A creature, whom Muhammad later concluded must be the angel Gabriel, joined him in the cave. He seized Muhammad and issued a single command, recite. Muhammad protested, I am unable to recite. He did not at that time consider himself to be a prophet. The angel repeated the injunction twice more, recite, recite. And finally, Muhammad's tongue was allegedly empowered to proclaim new revelation from Allah. Now, Allah is the, the God, the supreme being that Muslims worship, and Allah is different than Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Okay, but Muhammad's tongue was allegedly empowered to proclaim new revelation from this God, Allah. Under this divine influence, he spoke the following words. Proclaim in the name of your Lord and cherisher who created, created man out of a clot of congealed blood. Proclaim and your Lord is most bountiful. Muhammad claimed he was utterly terrified. 
So let's pause for a moment and ask some questions. Is it more important for us to ask some questions and figure out if these experiences uh, that he came across were from God himself? Or is it more important to try to figure out whether or not he had these experiences? Well, we want to know if they were from God because uh, whether or not he had the experiences isn't going to confirm whether they were from God or not. A few other questions that we can ask is this. Well, what does the Bible have to say about um, supernatural prophetic um, ex experiences like this in the post-apostolic age? You know, what does the Bible have to say about that? Uh, you know, Paul had some writings about that. We also have to see if this violates or discredits any of the Bible. Well, as we go through this lesson, um, we're going to, I'm going to show you through the scriptures um, that these visions that Muhammad had, including this initial one in the cave, uh, were not from God. Well, where did these, where did these experiences come from? You know, what Where's he coming from with this? Well, we don't exactly know. Uh, it could have been, uh, it could have had some demonic influences involved with it. It could have been from his imagination, or maybe he just made it up. Though it seems from his reaction and what he did after this point in time in his life that he definitely saw something and heard something in that cave. Deeply disturbed, Muhammad rushed back home to Mecca to be comforted by his wife Khadija. Muhammad feared that his vision had been instigated by demons, but Khadija and her cousin assured him that it was divine and that he had been visited by Gabriel. Muhammad came to accept his wife's explanation. Shortly after the first vision, Muhammad began his prophetic career. Interestingly, he referred to his visions on more than one occasion as not being of demonic origin. Perhaps Muhammad was never fully convinced of the origin of his visions. Believing that Allah was the one and only deity, Muhammad began to denounce his culture's widespread polytheism. At the time, Mecca was a major center for idol worship. The Kaaba, a cube-shaped building in Mecca, was a shrine for hundreds of idols representing the provincial deities of the various Arabian tribes. So as I'm explaining some of the origins of this religion, you can probably see how it would be easier to evangelize to a polytheist, someone who believes in multiple gods because it, it comes from pagan roots. But this uh, Islam uh, trying to witness to a Muslim can be difficult because it's a corruption of Christianity. They, they believe in a lot of the same things. They have a similar uh, singular God they worship. They have some of the same prophets uh, that we do, such as Abraham. So it can be very difficult to navigate uh, where the religion has gone off and, and, and trying to witness to a Muslim and explain the true gospel and who Jesus really was and what he says and why it's so important. So there's a thought for you just to keep in mind. Well, let's continue on with uh, the origin and where Islam came from. Predictably, Muhammad's campaign against idolatry raised the ire of his neighbors. 
fellow Meccans became increasingly hostile toward him. And when his uncle and protector, Abu Talib, died in AD 620, it became necessary for Muhammad to flee. He relocated in 622 to Medina, which was then called Yathrib, where he found a people eager to hear his new teachings. Muhammad's flight to Medina, called the Hajira, is so significant in Islamic history that it marks the beginning of the Islamic calendar, called Hijri. Muhammad became Medina's spiritual and political leader. In that role, he was able to build an army of 10,000 soldiers with which he expanded his political-religious control over all of Western Arabia. In 630, Muhammad returned to Mecca and conquered it without much resistance. On June 8, 632, Muhammad died of natural causes and he was buried in his home in Medina. After Muhammad's death, Islam spread rapidly beyond the confines of Arabia. Over the next century, Muhammad's successors conquered regions of modern-day Israel, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Egypt, Libya, Spain, and India. Today, vast areas of Africa and Asia lie under Islamic control. Well, that was a little bit of the origins of the religion of Islam. But now let's take a look at some of the specifics to their beliefs and practices. And we're going to start with sources of authority. Islamic sources of authority include the Quran, Sunnah, and Aymah. The Quran is the supreme holy book of Islam, and it's accepted by all Muslims. They believe it was dictated by Allah to Muhammad through the angel Gabriel and then written down by Muhammad's followers. The Quran is divided into 114 chapters called surahs. They are not arranged chronologically, but in order of decreasing length. Apparent contradictions between Quranic verses are explained away by the doctrine of abrogation. So, whenever two passages seem contradictory, the passage which was written later supersedes the earlier one. But can you see a problem here? If there's contradictions within the Quran, it's indicating to us that the book is of human origin, not divine origin. The Sunnah is the rule of life drawn from the extra-Quranic accounts of Muhammad's life and teachings. Sources for Sunnah include the Hadiths, which are collections of written tradition about Muhammad, and the Sirah, the Sirah are early biographies of Muhammad. The Aima is a very broad term denoting the consensus of the Muslim community on theological matters. Having a consensus as an authority means that both Islamic beliefs and Islamic practices are always subject to change. The Sunni and the Shia, the two major Islamic denominations, differ on their view of the Aima as a valid authority. The Sunnis accept it, while the Shias reject it. Well, let's look at those two major denominations and some of their distinctives. Sunnis constitute somewhere between 75 and 90 percent of the world's Islamic population, and between 10 and 20 percent of the Muslims are Shia. The two groups came about in the aftermath of Muhammad's death in 632. 
Those closest to Muhammad held that the most qualified candidate to replace him should be elected by prominent Muslim leaders. This resulted in the appointment of Abu Bakr to the Caliphate the same year. And the Caliphate is the leading Muslim ruler. But there were those who believed Muhammad had designated his cousin and son-in-law Ali as his rightful successor. Sunnis stand in the tradition of Abu Bakr's followers, while Shias stand in the tradition of Ali's. Battles over the issue of authority have driven a long-standing wedge between the two groups. So, Sunnis view authority as residing within the consensus of the Muslim community, informed by Islam's holy texts and traditions. Shias centralize authority in the hands of the Imams, who they view as the spiritual successors to Muhammad, Ali, and Hussein. And Shias believe that the Imams are sinless and infallible. These are the people who are leading in the mosques. But biblically, we know differently, right? We know that these Imams cannot be sinless and infallible because of what we read in Romans uh, chapter 3, where it says everyone is a sinner. Let's go ahead and take a look at Romans chapter 3 quick and see what the Bible has to say. I'm going to read verses 10 through 18. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And if you read further down to verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's no way that these uh, religious leaders, the imams, are sinless and infallible. Another denominational group, is Sufism, the mystical branch of Islam. Sufis seek to perfect their worship through asceticism, believing they can achieve total devotion to Allah. Sufism is actually a branch of Islam made up of both Sunni and Shia. So I covered their sources of authority. They have the Quran, they have the Sunnah, they have the Aima. Now, I also just went over their two denominational differences, the two major ones, the, the Sunni and the Shia. And now we're going to go over their six articles of belief, and I'm going to critique those from a biblical standpoint. The first is belief in God. Well, this belief entails far more than simply that there is just one God. It further prescribes that Allah is the only God and that he is absolutely singular in both nature and person. Putting anyone or anything else on the same level as Allah, which is called shirk, is regarded as an unpardonable offense. The Quran explicitly denounces the Trinity. We read in Surah 573, They do blaspheme who say, God is one of three in a trinity. 
for there is no God except one God. Well, the doctrine of the Trinity is one of our most foundational biblical truths. It teaches that although there is only one God, He exists eternally as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. One essence and three members. One nature, three consciousnesses. Let's turn to Luke chapter 3, where Luke records the baptism of Jesus. And this is what he wrote, uh, starting in verse 21. Now it happened that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. So, as God the Son is being baptized, God the Father speaks from heaven, and God the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. There clearly are three different persons of God witnessed here. Islam affirms of Jesus that he was a prophet, he was a miracle worker, he was sinless, he was virgin-born, and he was the Messiah. But it flatly denies Jesus' deity, crucifixion, and resurrection. And we regard these doctrines as not only important, but absolutely essential for doctrinal soundness and even for our own salvation. John 1 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. Colossians 2 9 says, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, speaking of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8 Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. We see from these verses that Jesus is eternal. We see that he is fully God. We see that he died and he rose from the dead. So this first article of belief, uh, the belief in God, we can see that there is a difference uh, between the belief in Allah and the belief in Yahweh, the God of the Bible. The second article of belief is the belief in angels. And like what we believe, Islam teaches that multitudes of invisible heavenly beings exist. Allah is believed to have created the angels from light. The Quran makes frequent mention of angels in connection with the delivery of Allah's revelation. Muslims also believe in an evil rank of invisible created beings called jinn, which were supposedly created from fire. Jinn have free will like humans. 
consequently, Muslims believe Allah will judge them according to their works. The evil jinn are those who refuse to bow down to the newly created Adam. Because being made of fire, the jinn believed that they were better than Adam, who was made only of water and earth. Well, in the Bible, Ezekiel chapter 28 records the fall of Satan and his angels in the context of the fall of the king of Tyre. Satan and his angels sinned by believing that they were better than God, not man. And furthermore, the Bible makes no mention of a group of spirit beings who have free will and have the opportunity to earn salvation. The third article of belief is in holy books. Well, Muslims acknowledge the Torah of Moses. They call it the Torah, the Psalms of David, the Zabur, and the Gospel of Jesus, which is called the Injil, as all divine revelation. However, they believe that the texts of these revelations, as contained in the Jewish and the Christian scriptures, were corrupted and altered over time. This necessitated the revelation of the Quran. It is regarded as the final and perfect revelation of Allah, which abrogates all previous holy books and corrects their alleged textual corruptions. So, in contrast to this one, if we're being Bible-believing Christians, uh, we consider the Bible to be inerrant, infallible, and the final authority in all matters of faith and conduct. 2 Peter 1 verses 20 and 21 says, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but by men, being moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So, what makes the Bible different than the Quran? Well, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what makes it have authority. That's what makes it inerrant and infallible. That's why the Bible doesn't have contradictions or errors in it like the Quran does and the writings of Islam over the years. The fourth article of belief is in holy prophets. Well, Islam acknowledges 124,000 prophets, which include Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Jesus, and Muhammad. Uh, these were righteous men whom Allah chose to be channels for his self-revelation to mankind. Muhammad is viewed as the last of the prophets, after whom no more shall arise. Muslims believe that Muhammad, not the Holy Spirit, is the fulfillment of Jesus' words in the Upper Room Discourse about a helper coming to be with the disciples. John chapter 14, 16 and 17, we read, And I ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, that he may be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Well, this wasn't Muhammad that Jesus was talking about. Christ was talking about the Holy Spirit. He said the Holy Spirit would be the helper. He would be the spirit of truth that would dwell in believers. Muhammad couldn't fulfill that. And when you read Acts chapter 2, 
Uh, it records the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, exactly as Jesus Christ said it would happen. The fifth article of belief is in the Day of Judgment. Well, the Day of Judgment in Islam is the time when Allah will judge every person on the basis of his or her deeds. Those whose good deeds outweigh their bad deeds will enter eternal bliss in paradise. Well, those who have more bad deeds will be consigned to eternal torment in one of the seven levels of hell. Only Muslims will qualify for entrance into paradise. All others will be condemned to hell. But merely being a Muslim is not enough to guarantee entry into paradise. Muslims must also strive to live in a manner pleasing to Allah, or they will be consigned to the first level of hell, Hahanam. For repentant Muslims, Hahanam will be temporary. For unrepentant or exceedingly wicked Muslims, consignment to hell could be permanent. However, Islamic eschatology offers only one opportunity to bypass the Day of Judgment and gain automatic entry into paradise. The Muslim must die as a martyr. Well, the concepts that we know of, such as original sin and total depravity, it's, it's so crucial and central to our faith, they're just absent in Islam. Instead, mankind is conceived as basically good, but just prone to make mistakes. And Muslims believe that humans sin frequently, but that Allah can forgive those sins if the sinner sincerely repents. And in Islam, no blood atonement is necessary for divine forgiveness. But we know, Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And on this issue of works, our good works outweighing our bad works in order to get into heaven, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So it has nothing to do about good works. It's not of works. It's by God's grace through faith in his Son that earns us eternal life and entrance into heaven. And let's also look at the permanence of our salvation in the Christian faith. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Romans 8.33-39 who will bring a charge against the God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Colossians 1.13, who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of his love. So, as believers, when we accept Jesus Christ, uh, when we put our trust in him for salvation, we are instantly transferred out of the domain of darkness and we're granted eternal life. And that can never be revoked. We can never lose our salvation. We're, we're never in threat of being placed in hell for something that we've done. We have eternal security. The sixth and final article of belief is predestination. Sunni Muslims believe that all things have been meticulously predestined by Allah. This has given rise to the expression, Inshallah, which means if Allah wills. And it's often used to express acceptance of a difficult turn of events. But Shia Muslims do not hold to this meticulous predestination, and they reject this sixth article of belief. Well, we know as Christians, we recognize that the God of the Bible, not Allah, is the one who is sovereign. There is no other God besides God. Isaiah 46, uh, 9 and 10 says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So, God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, He's the one that has planned the future from eternity past. He does what He pleases. No one's able to stop Him. His will will be done. So, not Allah. Allah is not in control of everything. God is. All right, so we've covered a lot so far, but there's one more thing that we have to cover, and it's the five pillars of Islam. Now, a pillar is a column which is designed to hold up a building. So these five pillars uh, hold up the faith of Islam. It, it holds up their beliefs and we're going to take a look at that with the five pillars of Islam. The first pillar is the pillar of recitation which is called Shahada. Okay, Shahada is the first pillar. There is no God but Allah. Muhammad is his prophet. This is viewed as the foundational confession for all of Islam. If a Muslim performs all of the prescribed daily prayers, he will recite the Shahada a minimum of 14 times during one day. The second pillar is prayer, which is called Salah. Five times a day, Muslims are required to perform Salah, a ritualistic prayer involving complex bodily movements and the recitation of various Quran passages. Muslims must ceremonially wash before performing Salah, or the Salah is invalid. The Muslim's whole day is supposed to be sanctified by these acts of worship. As the Muslim performs the acts, his cares, his worries, and his anxieties are to be replaced by a consciousness of Allah. 
The third pillar is fasting, which is called Som. Well, Som happens during the month of Ramadan, the ninth month of the lunar year. For the entire month, Muslims must abstain from eating, drinking, and having sex during daylight hours. These activities may be resumed after sundown each day. The fourth pillar is almsgiving, which they call zakah. While Muslims are required to give 2.5% of their accumulated finances annually, usually these funds are given to aid the poor or the needy. The fifth pillar is pilgrimage, or what they call hajj. Provided they are able to do so, all Muslims are expected to make a pilgrimage to Mecca once during their lifetime. Various rituals are prescribed which must be performed in Mecca during the pilgrimage. These are designed to reenact the story of Islam and assert one's solidarity with Abraham and Muhammad. While not officially recognized as one of the pillars of Islam, jihad plays a major role in Islamic conduct. There are differing opinions over what constitutes religiously valid jihad, but some scholars have distinguished two levels of Islam. You have great jihad, which is struggling against yourself to live a life devoted to Allah, or lesser jihad, which is struggling physically in Allah's cause against someone else. Well, there's a tendency among those on the left to downplay the military aspect of the so-called lesser jihad and to insist that Islam permits it only for self-defense and in the pursuit of religious freedom. Well, the opposite tendency exists among some of those on the right who view Islam as a fundamentally violent and militaristic religion. Both of these tendencies are oversimplistic and serve only to caricature Islam and Muslims. The truth regarding jihad is more complex. Some terrorist groups interpret jihad militaristically and pursue it with single-minded fervor. But many Muslims, including the majority of Muslims who live in America, oppose militaristic interpretations of jihad, and they view those actions of the terrorist groups as moral atrocities. All right. That was a whole lot of information on the religion of Islam, and I hope you gain some understanding uh, as it comes to their religion and what it believes. Now, what would a politically correct response to this religion be? Well, if you want to be politically correct, you would say, hey, here's a group of people who genuinely and sincerely believe in their faith, and uh, it's a religion, and it's good for them, and if you want to speak out against it, well, you should be silenced for hating on this group and, and speaking negatively about these people that want to believe in what they believe. That's the politically correct response. But what is the biblical response to Islam? Well, if we want to be biblically correct, um, we hold dearly to the sufficiency and the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. That's important to us. And what does the Scripture say? It says that Jesus is the one and the only way to be the Savior of the world. He's the only way that you can earn or receive, I should say, salvation. So, therefore, Islam is a false religion because it says otherwise. And that means Allah is a false God.
And we want to make sure that we're uh, trying to be biblically correct over politically correct. I know it can be hard sometimes, um, but we want to be biblically correct. Yahweh is the one true God. He is the God. And he created people in the image of himself. And they have value and they have purpose. So if we come across uh, violent militaristic and jihad groups, we need to speak out against them as they are, are causing damage and killing numerous people. We need to speak out against these groups. Or also there's certain Islamic um, countries where there are serious human rights violations going on. And we need to speak out against this and denounce it as sin and wrong and evil. Now, as Christians, we shouldn't hate Muslims. We shouldn't hate Muslims. We should love them. And we should see them as sinners in need of a savior. Of a savior. They need God's grace just as much as anyone uh, that doesn't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. So let's go ahead and look at our biblical response to this current culture of the religion of Islam. Remember, there's billions of Muslims in the world, the second largest religion growing rapidly every day. And our response should be to understand and witness to Muslims. To understand and witness to Muslims, hopefully going over some of the articles of belief and where they get their scriptures from and what their five pillars are. You'll have a better understanding of how to speak to and engage in conversations with someone uh, who is a Muslim when you talk about spiritual things. So I hope this lesson can really help you uh, if you have those uh, kind of encounters. The memory verse was Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 that we read, which says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Well, there is one more lesson coming in this series, and it's titled, Just Wars in a Fallen World. Well, we, we live in a world full of sinners, people that make sinful choices, wicked and, and evil uh, choices sometimes and actions. And we want to look on the theology or the Christian view on wars. How should a, how should a Christian view that? ethically. And we're going to look at two different views. One view is pacifism, where it's never okay to go to war. It's never okay to kill someone. Or the other view is just wars. There are times when it is allowed. And we're going to take a look and see what the Bible actually teaches and says about this. So if this is something you've wondered about, um, how should we view wartime in our current day and age right now? Uh, tune in next time and we'll take a look and uh, get a biblical perspective on it. So see you next time.